Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit ViralGrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. I think a lot of things that we knew to be true or have known to be true in the industry around uh, digital media are starting to evolve and to change. And I think that that, it's not really something to fear. I think it's something to be excited and motivated by because this is the evolution that we've really been experiencing for the last you know, 15, 20 years, things continue to change and evolve. And this is just kind of the next phase of it. So something we're focusing on, but excited to see where things go. Welcome to today's episode of Brave Commerce. I'm Rachel Tippograph, the founder and CEO of Micmac. I'm Sarah Hofstetter, president of Profitero. And this is a show that talks about what's relevant in e-commerce for the world's biggest brands. So Sarah, it's our first time where we have two guests on the show, which is pretty unusual. And the fact that PepsiCo wanted to bring essentially their head of global analytics and their head of North America e-commerce marketing onto the show, for me, that's a huge signal that very few silos must exist there. Yeah, for a company that large and frankly, quite enviable. I think there have been a lot of companies that have actually asked me how is PepsiCo organized? Why are they so far ahead? What can I do to either emulate or adapt? I think this becomes a representation of that where you're like, wow, you've got the media team and the analytics working together. Now, if you're agency side and you're listening to this, you're like, no, duh, of course they should be together. But if you're working a major CPG, this is not necessarily the most seamless of connection points. I can't remember the exact date, but I feel it was around 2017. When Pepsi took the Ecom P&L and moved it from Purchase New York to 250 Madison in Manhattan, I remember watching that office grow from like it was initially maybe 25 to 50 people. And I think pre-pandemic, the last time I visited that office, there were like 300 people there all just focusing on Pepsi's Ecom business. It's also been interesting to see over the past 
even since the pandemic hit, they're, they've made these forays into D2C, really diversifying their approach. I mean, at Profitero, very recently, we came out with this report on organizational dynamics and e-commerce maturity for CPGs. And there are like multiple stages of maturity that you can kind of go through as you're evolving your capabilities within a very large CPG, just because e-commerce, especially e-commerce data is one of those things that can transcend and be used by so many different groups from sales to marketing to inventory. Yep. Merchandising. Exactly. And so in the beginning, you're usually in that evangelize and educate phase where you're kind of off to the side, but your, your goal is to make sure that everybody knows about what e-commerce is and how you can use it and all that fun stuff. And as you get more percentage of your sales coming from e-commerce, you start getting more integrated into the workflow and behaviors of the totality of the organization. Remember when we had Sarabi from J&J? Absolutely. Well, now Colgate. Colgate, yes. And she said, there's no such thing as a chief electricity officer. Mm-hmm. Why did you have like an e-commerce lead? It should just be the air you breathe. And I think that's that, that maturity curve. And with PepsiCo, having so many people in their e-commerce division, you might think that they're off to the side. But just the fact that we have Sean and Emily on the show talking together clearly have a very healthy cadence of working together may say they may have a very big team, but they are influencing the outcomes across the organization. Absolutely. I still think there are challenges in the model because what I'm noticing is when e-com is maturing within an organization, it often becomes a standalone P&L, but then it's completely divorced from brand. Yeah. And it's divorced from Omni. It's divorced from brand. It could be a real challenge, especially when it comes to like brand reputation and brand equities. And just how you work with your customers, aka the biggest retailers in the world. I'm trying to think like, you know, in your research of, of the report that Profitero put out, have you found a Fortune 1000 organization that has figured out how to marry brand and e-com? I don't know that it's necessarily about what, what you would find in the report. I think that kind of comes from, from having the pleasure of working with so many different large, multi-brand, multinational companies, many of whom have been on the show. Yep. Absolutely. I, you know, I think it, it's so much more about the mindset. If you grew up in e-commerce and you're purely a bits and bytes kind of a person, you're not going to understand the totality of it all because you have the blinders on. But if you've got a mindset, kind of like the way we had with Todd Hassenfeld, you know, if you have a mindset of the totality of it all, the implications for brands and why the partnership is so important to connect brands and e-com or the partnership with analytics to be able to make that data flow like the electricity that Sarabi talked about, then you start getting better ways of working. If you're holding everything inside because, you know, you're paranoid or you think that that's a power play. We've seen that too. We've all seen those very, very bad, Mm -hmm. toxic environments. So I do think it's about mindset. Yeah. I think Todd from Simple Mills is a great example. Corey from Elf Cosmetics, who we had on the show, and now PepsiCo. Yeah. So on that note, let's bring Shyam and Emily onto the show. Today, we are thrilled to have Emily Frankel, Head of North America E-Commerce Marketing, and Sean Benugapal, Senior Vice President of Global Media and Commercial Capabilities at PepsiCo. I'm so thrilled that we have the opportunity to speak with you guys today because what PepsiCo has been doing both in data and e-commerce 
is perpetually the envy of the industry. I can't tell you how often I get questions from our clients, from people in the industry, specifically asking, so what's the secret to what's happening at PepsiCo, particularly from a data and e-com perspective? So we have a lot of listeners that have a global and regional structure like PepsiCo. It would be helpful for the audience to understand, particularly Sean and Emily, how do your roles begin and end, especially Sean with more of the global role and Emily with yours in North America? So I can get us started and Emily, feel free to jump in. Think about our team as a horizontal team that is servicing all our markets and all our categories. So we are serving marketers, we are serving general managers, we are serving our frontline sales uh, professionals uh, through capabilities uh, that leverage data and technology. So that's where we fit into the organization. So we are an enabler of uh, marketers and GMs uh, globally. I'll shift it over to Emily, where our worlds intersect is in the space of retail media, is in the space of e-commerce measurement. So I might be providing the measurement and Emily is uh, taking that measurement and deciding how best to drive our businesses across both online and e-grocery from a North America perspective. And Emily, take it away. Great. Thanks. So in my role as the head of marketing for e-commerce for North America, I oversee, we have a brand marketing team, a customer marketing team working with our retailers, marketing capabilities where we are building some of the tools to enable us to manage campaigns on various retail media platforms. We have consumer insights, and then we also have our own design and content team. So that is focused on our North America media efforts. However, we work closely with our global teams as well because we find that the capabilities that are required to succeed on retail media platforms, while they might be nuanced to local markets, a lot of the best practices are the same. And so we can share those best practices and in some cases even share the the technologies and the tools that we've built and then just customize them to the local market uh, as needed. This is great. And the fact that we have both of you together, I think is like one of those things that actually is already a testament to why people are envious of the PepsiCo model. I know this is going to sound like really ridiculous, but trust me, this is like one of those things where it's surprising how little connection there is. There are companies where data and analytics and insights are so far away from the activation that there's this envy of tiny companies that have that nimbleness to it. So how in a company as big as PepsiCo, do you guys even make that magic happen from data to insight to action to optimization? Sarah, it's an ongoing evolution for every company. Every time I feel we are getting better with data, I realize, hey, there's something more that we can do. So I would classify this as a, as a marathon and a sustained marathon versus a sprint. There are a few things uh, that are required to be sort of data-driven, right? I think bring data to every decision that we are making. So um, it could be a data point, but more importantly, hopefully that's a, it's a rich insight that you're bringing to the table. And then... Be sort of bold enough and lean enough to make decisions based on the data. And I think that's a cultural shift anyone can chew. Some companies are blessed with a lot of data, a lot of technology, a lot of analytics. Uh, but data is quite pervasive, I think. Uh, um, and it's there everywhere and anyone can use it. I think the first step is the critical step. How do you make decisions based on data? So I would add on to that, though, too, that I think not treating data as this is marketing data or this is sales data or this is data that has only one purpose. I think as we think about 
just the data that we have as a company and how we use it. We need to be open-minded and really understand all of the data that is available to us and creative in our thinking. You know, Sarah and I spend all day long working with organizations like PepsiCo. Micmac works with Mountain Dew specifically. And one of the things that I find unique to PepsiCo, and I would love for you to explain how it works, is how you guys are aligning your incentive and goals, right? You you sort of report into two different parts of the P&L. And at other organizations, you're just gold really differently. And as a result, that's why people don't work together. So what is that process? Let's just talk about 2022 operating plan. How are you guys coming together and aligning those goals and incentives? I think what's important to keep in mind is that we as a company want to do what is right for the company. And I think that that, to your point, Rachel, there might be different goals and even different plans in place. But I think at the end of the day, if you assume positive intent of your colleagues and that everybody is looking to do what is best for the company, it helps to overcome some potential, you know, even if there's a a point of friction or thinking about moving in two different directions, taking a step back and together saying, what is, you know, what is, what decision makes sense for us? And I think, you know, Sham and I have worked really closely together and we're not part of the same immediate team, but I think we, we collaborate because we say, let's take a step back. Let's think about what makes sense and put aside work structure in order to do that. And I think that that helps us to move forward. And then we can say, okay, Long-term, let's figure out what are different, you know, do we need to change our ways of working? Do we need to change something else? But I think from a first step, let's just figure out how to, to make the make the magic happen. Let's get the work to work first. We'll figure out the rest from there. Emily, you said something earlier when it was sort of global versus local country level and that there are best practices that you can apply at a local level. You know, retail media in the past year has had seismic shifts. Curious what shifts have you seen in North America that maybe you didn't see elsewhere and and vice versa? I can speak best to North America and what we've seen, but I think, you know, there is certainly been a rapid acceleration and adoption of e-commerce through this period of time. And I think there's no question that consumers who maybe have not used e-commerce in the past have shifted in that direction as a result of the pandemic. But I think what what we feel is necessary is to really just put the consumer at the center of, of all that we're doing and, and adapt our campaigns and adapt our reactions accordingly. So if we find that consumers are gravitating towards one type of product, making sure that we are in stock on that product and that we leverage the tools, whether search or otherwise, to make sure that those products are findable. And I think that that's consistent really across platforms. At the end of the day, we want to be where the consumer is. And so we want to make sure that if their behaviors are changing, that we are uh, that we are there to meet them as well. You know, there's been platforms that have really taken off in North America over the past year, like Instacart and GoPuff. And there's sort of this age-old question, which is, is this incremental to what we would have gotten if we just did a program directly with Kroger? With these new intermediaries and their development in retail media, how are you navigating that? I think, again, it's, it's being conscious of, of consumers and, and where they are and where they're shopping and being there to meet them. And so I think we want to make sure that we are on 
all of the various platforms, you know, whether it's an emerging platform like a, a GoPuff or a customer that we've worked with for a long time, like a Kroger, we are working with everybody and we are open to working with everybody to make sure that we are responding in a way that meets consumers where they are with the best possible experience. So making sure we have the right assortment, making sure that we are in stock on that assortment and making sure that consumers can find us when they type in the search box or if they're navigating throughout the UX. Well, with search being the new end cap, that's a pretty smart move. Or with GoPuff's retail location being entirely dark stores, that's probably a pretty important move. So you're clearly uh, following the trend as your friend. So Sham, to that end, the consumer behavior in different markets is pretty surprising. And part of it is a response to the way retailers are trying to condition consumers, whereas in the US, it's been a lot of reactionary. So the whole idea of click and collect, it had been around for a couple of years in the States, but it just didn't get the traction that COVID put it on. Whereas like in France, click and collect was the natural behavior. In the UK, Tesco's had a pretty strong infrastructure. So how do you think about the consumer journey ranging region to region and where that intersection happens with you know, a brick and mortar fulfillment, but a digital order? Like, how do you even think about that? Great question, Sarah. I'm a big believer in trends are universal and global and uh, uh, behaviors are somewhat uh, can be abstracted globally. Most of the places, I think all our marketers are dealing with the same question around like, uh, should I look at my world through a classic upper funnel, lower funnel, mid funnel lens, uh, or am I living in a world where funnels have all collapsed and I need to start coming up with better, more uh, agile investment strategies and things like that. And then this was our sort of uh, core belief that drove uh, a creation of some two foundational capabilities that we're starting to build globally. I think uh, we call that consumer DNA and store DNA. And I mean, if you Think about this, uh, it's our ex- abstraction of uh, seed to shelf or media to shelf. Like, uh, so SDNA, which is a store DNA, is anything and everything that you know about the outlets uh, that sell or could sell our products. Uh, um, so it will include external factors like footfall, shopper reviews, points of interest, uh, and internal formats like obviously sales execution, store format data. Consumer DNA is just a little from the shopper consumer perspective. So the same thing. It's a DNA for all people who buy our products or could buy our products. Uh, their propensities on uh, which formats, what store, uh, um, uh, retail locations are they going to buy our products, their interest media habits. And when you start putting these two things together, I think you start getting more crisper with uh, the questions around where should we invest? How should we invest? Uh, so the old age of right people, right product, right place, right time. It's making it easier for us to do some of these uh, investment shifts. Now, we have overlaid that with a more unified measurement framework as well. So that has been the other big from two for us globally is we had different measurement constructs. We had measurement constructs that operated on different KPIs um, across our funnel. And now we have converged all that using a unified measurement framework. We call it ROI engine, which again enables marketers, GMs to make some of these choices on how do I invest as these uh, as retail media is accelerating. And it's a conversation that I get on from Dallas to Paris to Sydney. I mean, I actually have one conversation with our Australian uh, counterparts uh, later today. So everyone's strapping with the same question, like how much should I invest? And if so, what should I invest? Where should some of these investments come from? 
it's all coming from the same A&M pool. Um, so making the right decisions on that become critical. Very personal question. Sham, you've got a, an 18-month-old. Emily, you've got three kids. What is your preferred way of grocery shopping right now? You don't have to say the retailer. I'm sure you love all of them equally. But yeah, like, uh, are you a ship to home? Are you a click and collect? What are you? I am a ship to home all the time. I don't have any time. I think, uh, which is what I realized, uh, neither does, uh, does my wife. Our world has become this 18-month-old 24-7. So anytime we don't have to step outside. So we are the biggest adopters of all delivery platforms that you can think of. And the only time I nowadays go to grocery shop is just to understand how um, things are changing within the retail footprint. But yeah. So it's market research. It is more market research for me now. Emily, what about you? Uh, we are all over the board as well. We do a lot of ship to home. Between my husband and I, we we still do go in store as well. We'll have things delivered too. It really just depends on how much time we've had to plan, how immediately we uh, we need what we're looking for. But yeah, it's uh, especially over the last year, we have been... Um, in in all pla- I'd say in all platforms. Um, though I do find that the solo trip to browse the aisles of a grocery store is a luxury <laughs> um, that um, doesn't happen too frequently, just with with all of the little ones. But it I, it serves in a, as an escape in a way too to just be able to browse. When my daughter was was uh, a baby, so before after I had my first, but before I had my second. That was like my escape was walking up and down the aisles of the key food in Queens. Like it was oddly calming. So (laughs) So much to look forward to the day I've become a parent. Sarah, we may need to get to the end, but I did have another big question. So let's see if we can squeeze it in. So Sham, and I think this is for you and Emily. It sounds like PepsiCo has their hands on a treasure trove of data. Yet we live in a world where first-party data is really translating into brand value and retail value. People are not as open with making that data accessible to brand manufacturers. Then you have the added nuance of the cookie-less internet, everything that's happening with iOS 14. And then I marry that with the headlines of PepsiCo trying to make inroads into D2C. So I'm curious how you guys are navigating first-party and third-party data to have all of this live in your DNA infrastructure? I think the very first question, Rachel, is uh, um, I think if I break first-party down, I think there's a notion of there are ways to acquire first-party data. But the real question is uh, how are you developing the right consumer value exchange where uh, uh, it makes uh, sense for consumers to share their data because uh, there is some form of value exchange that we are doing with them. And those value exchanges could be new recipes, new content that we share with them, or it could even be products from a D2C perspective. So things that we are doing at the back end is uh, refining what that value exchange system looks like. And a great example is uh, what we are doing in Turkey. So in Turkey, uh, there is an app and you can actually... uh, download this. Uh, it's called Kessendrio, which is essentially a personalized value offer uh, platform that we have developed with the intent of uh, driving the right offers uh, um, and the right rewards uh, to the end consumers. And I think we are doing similar initiatives uh, in a few other markets uh, globally, but 
the key to crack is what is the right value exchange with our end consumer that we want to develop. And from a backend perspective, we have been on a journey to uh, ensure that the right infrastructure is in place, the right and the most restrictive uh, privacy controls are in place. So we are treating and honoring the data because it's a sacred data and uh, as best as we can. Emily, anything to add from us, snacks.com? Again, when we think about from a direct-to-consumer perspective or even how we operate within the world of retail media, the data ecosystems become just a focus, right? Media ecosystems become a focus. How do we understand what lives within a walled garden from one to the next? And so as we're buying media, as we're engaging with the retailers, it's helpful to think about what data can we access through a retailer's ecosystem, for instance, and how is that going to evolve over time? What does it mean to buy media that's owned and operated by the retailer versus an audience extension program? And further, what are the implications from a cross-media measurement perspective? So, you know, it becomes a really exciting time because I think a lot of things that we knew to be true or have known to be true in the industry around uh, digital media are starting to evolve and to change. And I think that that it's not really something to fear. I think it's something to be excited and motivated by because this is the evolution that we've really been experiencing for the last, you know, 15, 20 years, things continue to change and evolve. And this is just kind of the next phase of it. So something we're focusing on, but excited to see where things go. We're in agreement, Sarah and I, it's terribly exciting, I should say. And I think on that note, we're at the final question. So I'll start with you, Emily. What's the bravest thing you've ever done? Well, aside from uh, moving back into my parents' house with my husband and kids uh, for five weeks during the pandemic, just kidding, um, that they were wonderful to uh, to take us in um, during that crazy time. I think from a work perspective, and my first job was at an ad agency and there was an opening on the search marketing team. And this is back in 2004. So search marketing was, um, was nascent as a specialty and Google um, was like just preparing to go public. Uh, so I'm you know, dating myself, setting the stage. But um, I was advised by a lot of people not to take the role. Because people said, well, you're going to focus, the focus is really narrow and who knows if search is going to go anywhere and, you know, don't pigeon, uh, pigeonhole yourself so early in your career. And I basically thought to myself, well, like the worst, in the worst case, if search marketing doesn't go anywhere and search doesn't really become a thing and it fizzles out, like at least I've learned something that's interesting. And so you know, it was early enough in my career, like the worst thing that could happen is you know, it wouldn't go anywhere. I'd reach a dead end and I would have to pivot. And I figured I had enough time in my career that I could make a pivot. And so I took the job on the search marketing team and was grateful that I did. I think it worked out. Google seemed to, to do just fine and <laughs> search marketing remained the thing. I love that the Google IPO validated your decision. <laughs> and Sean? I think by far the bravest thing I would have done was uh, 16 years back, having the courage to go talk to my wife, uh, to my to this person who eventually became my partner and my wife, I think I am a highly introverted person. So uh, just having the courage to go up talk probably was the bravest thing. Professionally, nothing comes to that. So Beautiful. Thank you both. This was an amazing doubleheader. Everything that's happened at PepsiCo, I didn't share this, but I started my career. I was literally Pepsi on Twitter in 2009. It's such a remarkable place. I truly believe this is an organization that invests in in people's career growth. And Sarah and I are so appreciative of your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. 
Thanks for listening. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and Google Podcasts. And don't forget to share this link with a friend. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just the thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality. Hi, I'm Jackie Cooper, Global Chief Brand Officer at Edelman and the host of Touch of Truth, a new podcast launching on the Adweek Podcast Network. My dad gave me this incredibly smart piece of advice. Meet everyone once. As a result, I've met some of the most fascinating and inspiring people on the planet. Now on Touch of Truth, we're coming center stage and sharing the mic to experience stories of truth, insights and visions for the future that will challenge your way of thinking. Touch of Truth is available wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out every Tuesday. I do hope to see you there.